Welcome back to The Absolutes. This is Professor Greg Reichberg speaking to you from Oslo, Norway on a lovely summer evening. I have a guest on the podcast this evening, Glenn Hughes, Professor Emeritus at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas. His friends call him Chip. Chip has just finished writing a book, From Dickinson to Dylan, Visions of Transcendence in Modernist Literature. And the theme of Chip's book fits in perfectly with the absolutes. So we're going to talk about how the absolute appears in literature. And the discussion with Professor uh, Hughes will focus on the concept of transcendence. I still remember when I was a junior high school student. I was in boarding school. It's about 15 years old. I went to the library and said to the librarian, what can I read about transcendence? Somehow at that young age, I became intrigued with that, that idea. I don't recall that I actually was uh, led to anything that I, uh, that I read, uh, but the idea of the, the transcendent and of transcendence stayed with me. So Chip, to get us started, what's meant by this word, the transcendent? or transcendence. Thank you, Greg. It's good to be talking with you. Transcendence is a word that is easily misunderstood. Um, it's a word that's used in theology and in philosophy and in other areas, and often is used simply to refer to that which is profoundly mysterious. The word transcendence comes from the verb to transcend, so it just means beyond, and something beyond our understanding is transcendent, but something permanently beyond our understanding is transcendent in a more profound way. And one of the ways I use to define the notion of transcendence in a somewhat technical way is to explain it both in terms of our knowing and in terms of the nature of reality. So very quickly, in terms of knowing, if we say human beings question and we can continue to question what the causes of things are and what ultimate reality is, and at a certain point we realize that our questions outstrip our answers. That we can ask, well, if there's a universe, where is it? Why is there a universe? If someone replies, because there's God, we can ask, well, why, why is there a God? And at that point, we've reached a certain limit or horizon where our questions reach into a realm that we know we can't understand. So transcendence in terms of human knowing refers to that. In terms of the whole of reality, transcendence has a slightly more restricted 
meaning. If we think of it as a kind of being or a realm of meaning or being, then transcendence has been most uh, succinctly described or defined as reality that is not intrinsically conditioned by space or time. Anything that is conditioned by space and time is changeable and perishable. A transcendent reality, speaking in terms of the kind of being that transcendence would have to be, um, the philosophical word is ontologically. The ontological notion of transcendence is a being that, or a, or a realm or dimension of meaning that is not intrinsically conditioned spatially or temporally, which means that it is not changeable or perishable. It sounds to me as though, and tell me if I've got it right, that the transcendent relates to the some sort of other reality of the sort you just described, uh, not confined by space and time. The uh, transcendence is our coming into contact with it. Is, is that right? That's right. I think it might be, um, it might be helpful to think of transcendence in terms of two caveats, um, which, um, which help dispel some common misimpressions. If transcendence is not conditioned by space and time, then transcendence is not some place or some thing far, 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 far away. That's a spatial metaphor. Transcendence, we tend to, when someone uses a term that refers to a transcendent reality, such as God or nirvana, heaven, the imagination immediately tends toward thinking of that as a very, 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 very distant realm, even beyond the stars. But a reality that isn't spatial and temporal is not a place. It can't be. It's not spatial. So this is why the mystics, when they refer to transcendence, Eastern or Western mystics, always make a point of saying transcendence is not there or here. It's not no place or some place. It's a very difficult notion to get a handle on in that respect, because we have to try to think of a reality that is, uh, in non-spatial terms. The other uh, misconception is linked to that, which is the idea that somehow, because transcendence is other, as you just said, other than what we experience as our finite spatial universe of everyday living, that somehow we are not connected with it. But transcendence is a reality which in its non-spatialness and non-temporality is in a sense everywhere in which we are participating 
always and immediately as a dimension of truth or meaning or reality that's not far away, but rather we are sharing in it so that the finite everyday experience that we associate with everyday living and our everyday experiences is for human consciousness always bound up with participating in a transcendent dimension of meaning as well so that human consciousness and human existence are best thought of as a kind of in-between reality where transcendence and the opposite of transcendence, which is called sometimes eminence, eminence and transcendence, that which is conditioned by space and time and that which is not conditioned by space and time, are mingled or interpenetrate each other. And that is why human beings, human, uh, human thinking, continually thinks of and adverts to the idea of absolutes because we are participating in transcendence all the time. This is, this is a very clear presentation about something that's not easily uh, circumscribed in language. Uh, so, but exactly. I, that was admirably clear. Let's talk a bit about literature now. Uh, you know, the, 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 what I would say the normal setting for talking about the transcendent transcendence would be, well, philosophy, theology, mystical writings. I'm intrigued by the fact that you've directed your attention to literature. The subtitle of your book is Visions of Transcendence. Tell us a bit about how there are visions of transcendence in literature. It's a great question. Literature, along with the other arts, has an interesting and important place in orienting us toward the uh, a realm of transcendent meaning. And that special place is derives from the fact that as human beings, we require images in order to feel and think and understand. Our imaginations are, you might say, the soil of our understanding. And images are not only required for us to have insights into what things are and how things are related to each other, but images move us. They emotionally carry us forward. They sometimes are the most profound impetuses for our commitments and our actions. Literary artists, as well as other artists, their specialty is to shape and create forms with compelling, powerful images that speak to our whole beings because they speak to our imaginations, our emotions, our bodies, and our intellects, 
all at the same time. So, so what you're saying is that literature has a potential to convey transcendence in a way that discursive thought, you know, philosophical analysis uh, or rational theology do not. So you're saying that, that there is a, a kind of mode of access uh, through images that's particularly beneficial in, in what, describing the transcendent or leading us into it? I think leading us into it is probably a preferable phrase um, because we can never define it fully since as transcendence it goes beyond all that we can question and all that we can imagine. But the images in literature as well as in the other arts, in painting, in dance, in sculpture, in music, of course, they can suggest and hint at transcendence in a way that discursive thought in philosophy and theology can't. Um, as you know, being a philosopher uh, yourself and a specialist in Thomas Aquinas, uh, if one reads uh, Aquinas or any great theologian or philosopher about uh, the nature of God or the nature of spiritual processes, one is likely to come across dozens and dozens of pages without any imagery or examples whatsoever, which is fine if the questions that you have are the questions that Aquinas is answering. But for the, how shall I put this, for, for, for us who are interested in philosophy and theology, but also for all who are not particularly interested in the complexities of highly refined, rational, disc discursive thinking, we need, uh, in the depths of our souls, to be reminded of and to be led toward the ultimates, the absolutes, the transcendent truths and the transcendent values that we live in and are surrounded by, and the beauty and the power of literary and artistic images does that for us. Now, I know that if I were to sit down and read Dante's The Divine Comedy, I would be led into this universe. So I'm intrigued. Uh, why, for this book, did you focus on modernist literature? There are two reasons. One of them is that I have been reading these authors all my life, and it's a joy to be able to explore and investigate and try to articulate my understandings as far as they go uh, in these authors. But there's a, a broader cultural reason, historical reason, you might say, which is that we sometimes think that in the last few centuries, literature, along with much else of 
modernist culture and now postmodernist culture um, has shown a steady weaning of itself away from thinking about religious matters or spiritual matters or transcendent matters uh, and has become increasingly, to use the general term, secularized so that we tend to think of modern or modernist literature as less and less concerned with matters that Dante, for example, was concerned with. Or, or even opposed to such concerns. Or even, or even opposed. You know, there's the, the focus on the contingent, uh, the relative, uh, the loss of meaning. Exactly. The inability to, you know, to uh, the inability to find meaning uh, and to give up on that sort of pursuit as a futile one. I mean, Franz Kafka would, I think, epitomize that sort of mindset. Uh, let's let's consider some of the thinkers or the or the writers that that. Um, you discuss in your book. What's what was the principle of selection? Apart from these are authors that you love to read. Yeah, that was that was one of the that was a major principle. But but the uh, but the one that pertains to the thesis of the book is that these six authors, who are Emily Dickinson, Marcel Proust, T. S. Eliot. Ezra Pound, Samuel Beckett, interestingly, yeah. and uh, Bob Dylan, our recent Nobel laureate, all of them are centrally concerned with the issue of transcendence in one way or another. Each of them, each uh, the work of each of these authors is... Um, at its very core, continually focused on and trying to make sense of human existence as related to transcendence or participating in transcendent truth or value, or in Samuel Beckett's case, um, let's say anxiously fearful because it seems as if there is no transcendent reality but his work shows that anxious fearfulness continually from beginning to end. So to, to put it in a, in a very simply, because each of them is concerned with transcendence, uh, a theme that runs through the heart of their works, each of them is concerned with the, uh, the, the idea that human beings are participating in a mysterious reality or in a mysterious way whose ground, the ground of reality, um, is a, a mystery with a capital M, one might say. And so my thesis is that if we take the word broadly enough, we can describe each of these authors as a mystic, not a mystic in the sense of St. John of the Cross or other famous formerly known mystics, but a mystic in the sense that they understand human existence as bound up with a transcendent mystery 
and not interpretable properly except in relation to that transcendent mystery. authors as all presenting uh, an approach to one and the same transcendent reality? Or do you view them as exemplifying different, well, the word conception, it's not quite right, different imaginations of the transcendent, even different approaches? Uh, are they when they talk about the transcendent, are they all talking about the same thing? Uh, or are they talking about something different? That's an excellent point. They are talking about and imagining transcendence in a variety of ways. And although each of them is, I believe, properly defined or described as a mystic, the mystery of the ground of reality, which they are trying to um, symbolize and provide appropriate images for in their works, are rather different from each other, differently understood, differently symbolized. I'll give you a, a brief example, a couple of examples to show the difference very quickly. For Emily Dickinson, transcendence is essentially thought of in biblical terms. But Dickinson was notoriously uh, a, um, as we say, she rejected the church of her family, her society, and her upbringing in Amherst, Massachusetts in the middle of the 19th century, which was congregationalist in denomination with a Calvinist theological background. Uh, in her middle teens, she refused to be confirmed, refused to take communion from that point on, never went to church again. Uh, and as everybody knows, she became something of a recluse, although she was a lively spirit. And yet, she continued to draw on the biblical symbolizations for her articulation of transcendence and especially Christian uh, symbols and the person of the, the image of the person of Christ. So that what we have in her writings is her grappling with the exploration of her deepest experiences, which she always understood in terms of their, her relationship to a transcendent divine reality. And in that grappling, sometimes she finds the God of Christianity, and sometimes she doesn't. So in her work, she varies. She uh, oscillates between an affirmation of a Christian God and a severe skepticism. And the outcome in her 1800 or so poems and poetic fragments is that she ends up being something like a something like a uh, uh, Her the critic Harold Bloom once referred to her as constituting a sect of one <laughs> in her in her Christian orientation so on the, to 
to to contrast that with can I, can the... I can I just oh yes interject? please one, one, one small thing the uh, when you were you're talking about her background uh, mm -hmm. sort of left the established church that she had been raised in into and uh, never never looked back. Uh, there's a French poet named Pierre Reverdy who during the Second World War lived in a village uh, village in, in France uh, where there's a large monastery, a Benedictine monastery. And I have a friend who's, who's a monk at that monastery, and he's the one who related this to me. And Reverdy was a Catholic but was hardly seen at Mass. So one day one of the monks paid him a visit and tried to say gently, uh, maybe you need to think a bit more about God and God's place in your life. And Reverdy looks at the monk and says, that's all I think about. <laughs> that's my problem. I can't stop thinking about that. Okay, but exactly. uh, now let's move on to the counterpoint to, to uh, Emily Dickinson. Oh, yes. The, the next... Uh... The next author after Dickinson with whom I uh, deal in the book, uh, the book is laid out uh, in chronological sequence with respect to when the authors lived, is Marcel Proust, the, the great novelist famous for his seven volume novel, In Search of Lost Time, which you may or may not have read, I'm not sure. Uh, and Proust is a very interesting kind of mystic. He was, uh, he was uh, baptized and raised as a, as a Christian, and even in his early 20s, he proudly announced that he identified himself as a Christian. Uh, but by the time he was writing his great novel, and in the course of it, he had uh, transformed into something so somewhat different, kind of. He always, his orientation towards... Um, uh, how, whatever transcend, uh, whatever he understood transcendent reality to be, was always was always that of a mystic. He never lost sight of it. He, uh, if we take the narrator of his novel as, to some degree, uh, mostly, um, a self-portrait. It's uh, one doesn't want to take that that uh, identification. Um, too narrowly, but um, Proust describes how he describes a childhood and an adolescence and an adulthood in which the the narrator, the uh, first person pronoun I, the narrator is always awakened by and um, responsive to hints of a mysterious greater reality that encompasses everything and. Uh, which makes sense of everything. But he doesn't come to understand uh, to his satisfaction what this ultimate reality is uh, until a number of epiphanies arrive to him, as he describes it in late middle age. And this occurs in the seventh volume of this seven volume novel. So you're about 4,000 pages in by the time you, you, you reach a, uh, a grasp of where it's all been leading to. And in an extraordinary 50 or 60 page sequence of this last volume, Proust presents existence as 
human existence as being able to undergo the kinds of experiences that were that were hints and suggestions of this extraordinary uh, mystery that uh, comprehends all else in reality because human beings exist in two different uh, on two different planes you might say at the same time one of them is our everyday world of space space and time and the other is what he refers to as eternal being not as god not as a personalized divinity as in christianity but as an eternal being which he participates in which all created things participate in and how does he know this eternal being exists primarily because there are experiences that he has had in which in a very um, th thoroughgoing deeply emotional and transformative way he finds himself experiencing a moment of the past or a sensation of the past and a moment of the present or a sensation of the present which is similar to it as occurring both of them simultaneously in the present moment so that the moment of the past and the moment of the present the sensation of the past or the sensation of the present are both present simultaneously fully real and fully existing and he asks himself how can this be and he answers himself by saying the only way that i could experience this moment and sensation of the past as present and this moment and sensation of the present as present simultaneously is if i am existing both in time and beyond time at the same time i i think i've heard somewhere that the definition of the eternal the eternal is that which is simultaneously whole I may have a part of the definition and not the whole, but it's this idea of all that is, 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 is if there's any diversity, it exists in a, in a condition of simultaneity. Simultaneity, yes. And it sounds something like what Proust is describing. It um, is very much like that. So Proust's idea of eternal reality ends up sounding kind of like Plato's world of eternal forms. Some critics have compared his notion of eternal being as Hindu sounding or Buddhist sounding, but whatever else they say, everybody agrees that it sounds very platonic, that it sounds very much like Plato's idea uh, as discussed in Republic and other dialogues. Um, so he's moved away from the notion of transcendence being a divine personhood, but he is very eloquent about the fact that. Sorry about that. Uh, and other created things all participate all the time in a realm that is changeless and timeless. But human beings know that that's true, whereas other created beings don't. They're in it, but they don't know that they are. Yeah, a tree or a, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it is, the tree may be, uh, the, the tree participates in the eternal reality of uh, 
of um, a, a, a timeless and unchanging uh, form of meaning, but the tree doesn't know it. Yeah. Uh, you do and I do. However, that doesn't mean that every human being automatically, just by getting old enough to think about these things, agrees with this or has an understanding of this. Because as Proust says somewhere, and in fact, uh, most of the authors that I discuss say this in one way or another, it is very possible, it is typical, in fact, for, uh, to use a phrase from T.S. Eliot's poem, Cycle for Quartets, it's very possible to have the experience but miss the meaning. It's possible to have the experience but miss the meaning. The experience being the experience of living Not, in between world and transcendence. I mean, have the experience and not be able to name it, not be able to recognize it, name it, not have any reference points for knowing what it is that one has experienced. Let's jump ahead to Bob Dylan. He has to be there. We're all curious. How did, how did Bob make his way into this? Tell us a little bit about Bob Dylan as a mystic, mystic poet. Dylan is there because, first, even though songs, song lyrics, are certainly not poetry, most of Dylan's lyrics don't read well on the page as poetry, as many of the critics of his receiving the Nobel Prize pointed out. But at the same time, the lyrics of song form a category that if one wants to place them in a genre for assessing in, uh, in, in the context of assessing their, their value or their achievement, uh, could probably be said to be literary. So within my chapter discussing Dylan with, um, I, I mentioned these things and, um, and other conditioning factors for appreciating Dylan, which include the fact that the melodies, the songs, the, uh, um, the phrasing, the articulation, the presentation, uh, all of these convey the meaning of the songs and they're all elements in conveying the meaning. And that's not something that you can, um, you can get onto a page, obviously. So all of that being said, there is in Dylan's songs, and this is something that the, the Nobel uh, Prize Committee was paying attention to, there's something in Dylan's songs, uh, his lyrics, which frequently um, conveys with extraordinary uh, imagistic and symbolic power, very important conditions, very important truths and values that we grapple with as essential to our understanding of the human condition. And he has done so in novel ways and um, in a in terms of the genre of song that he's working in there's really no one to equal him in terms of the power of his images now as for him being a mystic from his earliest recordings pretty uh, certainly beginning with his second album and certain famous songs such as the hard rains are going to fall uh, there is in dylan's imagery a strong element of um, the what in 
biblical language is referred to as eschatological uh, feeling and thinking, and which is sometimes associated with uh, images that are apocalyptic. And Dylan's ability to shape language in his in his song lyrics that um, either suggest or affirm very strongly that there is an ultimate accountability of human beings, a moral accountability and a spiritual accountability, which will come to a term, some kind of conclusion in which there will be judgment on persons and the world uh, in some kind of, um, in a manner that is, that is, um, has always been very, very close to or informed by the biblical understanding of an ultimate judgment or an ultimate um, outcome of things. You know, there's a line that came to me from the traveling Wilburys. Uh, meet, meet you at the end of the line. Would Dylan have written that 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 phrase? And to me, that's eschatological. <laughs> I think <laughs> maybe maybe I'm wrong. Uh, uh, our mutual friend Henrik Sousa could could correct me, but I believe that that was uh, a, a lyric that came from George Harrison. But, okay, uh, I might I, I I might be wrong. Uh, but in, in Dylan's work, um, one of the things that you find, you find this very, very early. Um, he was raised Jewish. Uh, he was familiar with the Bible, not a, a deep studier necessarily, but he was a, a real, uh, whatever he touched and read, it sank into him. He absorbed things really, really readily. And from his, uh, from his early life on through the present, as far as one can tell, he has read the Bible and his thinking has been informed by both Old Testament and New Testament imagery very profoundly. He's also said in interviews, I believe the book of Revelation. Uh, and as we all, uh, as most people who, who pay attention to Dylan um, are aware, there were a number of years in the late 70s and early 80s when he converted to a form of evangelical Christianity and released three albums, two and a half of which are essentially his version of gospel music. Uh, well, that was a period in the now what we can consider the middle of his career. But if one looks at his lyrics from the very beginning of his own songs, from Blown in the Wind and The Hard Rains of Paul, all the way to his latest album, which came out last month, one finds imagery and symbolism of end times, of divine judgment, of divine love, of gratitude towards uh, transcendent being. And most of the time, um, that imagery and that symbolism is intentionally open-ended and mysterious and vague in a way that, in fact, we experience transcendent reality as being mysterious. 
and ungraspable and undefinable. So one could, he's written about 600 songs and one could probably find in at least 50, if not 100 of them, some kind of imagery which is suggestive of a transcendent meaning. I, I've been very engrossed in this conversation. Uh, I've lost sense of time. I think our time is just about up, though, without having kept track of it. Uh, I'm very grateful to you, Chip, for discussing the transcendent and transcendence with us. Uh, is there a, a last thought you'd like to convey before we uh, move our, in our, in our uh, separate directions this evening? Well, it's 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 midday where you are. Evening here. Go on. Yes. I think the uh, the 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 concluding thought or the summative thought of this work and this conversation, for which I'm very grateful, is that there are in modern literary figures, modernist literary figures in this case, but also uh, postmodern figures. There are quite a few genuine mystics who are trying to understand their experiences of a transcendent reality and trying to get their experiences symbolized and articulated. And those mystics have a tough time for re the reasons that you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, there are many other authors and um, streams of culture in our time which reject the notion of transcendence as outmoded, superstitious, and irrelevant. So it comes as a little bit of a surprise to some people that so many uh, contemporary authors or modernist authors, including some of the most famous figures, are in fact mystics who are affirming in one way or another, that we really can't understand ourselves as human beings unless we grasp that we participate in a transcendent reality, or at least, as in Samuel Beckett's case, that we are irrevocably concerned with whether or not there is a transcendent reality. Even if we don't find the answer, we can't shake the question. Perfectly put. Thanks very much, Chip.